A little girl named Sue was suffering from a rare and serious disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother because he had miraculously survived the same disease and he had developed the antibodies that were needed. The doctor explained the situation, asked the little boy if he'd be willing to give his blood to his sister. He hesitated for only a moment before taking a deep breath and saying, yes, I'll do it if it will save her. As the transfusion progressed, he lay in a bed next to his sister and he smiled as they all did, seeing the color returning to her cheeks. Then his face grew pale and his smile faded. He looked up at the doctor and asked with a trembling voice, will I start to die right away? The little boy had misunderstood the doctor. He thought he was going to have to give his sister all of his blood in order to save her. This boy loved his sister so much that he was willing to die instead of her. This boy felt he knew what his purpose for living was, and once it was completed, nothing more mattered. Well, how clear are you about your life purpose? Does it motivate you to get up in the morning? Does it give you the strength that you need to face the next difficult task that lies ahead? This spring, our sermon series has been on the book of Esther. Take a moment now to navigate to Esther chapter four. If you have a physical Bible with you, just open it right in the middle so that you've got like equal amount of pages on either side. You've likely opened to Psalms then and just Go back a little ways past Job, you'll find Esther. Now, this book of the Bible tells us a historical short story. It occurred likely around 480 BC. So that's during the time that King Xerxes was ruling over this massive Persian empire. Now, here's a recap of what's happened so far. In the first three chapters, we learn that King Xerxes, he enjoys to party because that is how he brought the leaders together. And in his third year of reigning, he impulsively divorces his first wife for not responding to his drunken command to appear in front of all the leaders who were also drunk. Now, later on, he regrets this decision and his attendants suggest he select a new wife by taking captive beautiful young virgins from every province. One of the girls who's forced to participate in his new harem is a Jewish girl named Esther. And the king, he favors her because she's extremely beautiful and he marries her. Several years pass and still no one knows that Queen Esther is a Jew, one of God's chosen people. Now, obviously, her husband is not the most attentive. He's never even asked her about her heritage, her family or her God. And interestingly, Esther has also never volunteered this information. She chose to be silent because she was following the instructions given to her by, her, her, um, by Mordecai, her cousin. He was like an adoptive father figure to her. See, she was an orphan and Mordecai had raised her. And in chapter three, we're introduced to Haman, King Xerxes' second in command. And he's just as disgusting as the king. He decrees everyone must bow down to him. But Mordecai, he refuses to bow down, which makes Haman enraged. And because when you're angry, 
you don't think rationally, Haman decides he not only wants Mordecai dead, but he wants all the Jewish people. So he blows this personal conflict way out of proportion. And Haman persuades the king by offering a significant amount of money for an agreement to the scheme to annihilate the Jews. Now, a hundred years before all of this, the Jews had been exiled into Babylon. That's why they were living there. That's why they weren't in the promised land. They had been living in servitude under a number of kings. They were granted some religious freedoms at one point, at around 539 BC, and they were allowed to move back. But the majority of Jews chose to remain in Babylon, probably just comfortable with what was familiar. Now, I assume they were wishing now that they had left, but it's too late. An official order is sent to every province announcing that on a certain day, every other nationality was to kill any Jew that was near them. So obviously, this is a crisis that is about to cause chaos for God's people. And that brings us to the beginning of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This ancient Eastern ritual of mourning, it's an interesting one to me. It includes tearing clothes, wearing uncomfortable sackcloth, which was like a coarse material made out of goat or camel hair, and also putting ashes on their head, rubbing ashes into their skin. And that would have made them smell like smoke, look pretty ghastly and really dirty. But the ashes, they represent desolation and a state of emptiness, misery. Very simply, sackcloth and ashes were used as an outward sign of one's inward condition. And people did this to show that they were grieving. Well, I think we can all learn something, at least from how willingly they acknowledged their grief. Being honest about loss is necessary. I've met some Christians who believe that they shouldn't allow themselves to experience grief. That is not biblical. We need to acknowledge loss, to validate the losses that others are experiencing. A loss not grieved only increases the grief of the next loss. Now, it's normal to grieve when a friend or a family member dies, but there are other significant losses that trigger grief. The end of a relationship, moving to a new community, maybe someone you know contracts a life-threatening disease. Or, as in the case here in Esther, whenever opportunities are suddenly slammed closed, these are all reasons to grieve. I believe this pandemic has amplified loss. Is there a loss that's coming to your mind right now that you know you've yet to grieve? Acknowledge your feelings. Take time to care for yourself. Make time for relationships. All of these things will make a huge difference in your healing. 
Now, often people are afraid to confront their grief for fear that if they open up this door, they will just be drowned in a flood of tears or some other uncontrollable emotions. But usually the opposite happens. If you allow others to express care for you during your time of grief, it keeps you balanced. We need to let others help. I think that's why Mordecai didn't cry alone. Actually, Mordecai couldn't have been more public in his actions. He went into the city as close as he could get to the king's courts and he wailed loudly and bitterly. He was certainly looking for attention. And more specifically, he wanted Esther's attention. So it gets back to her what Mordecai is doing and she sends him some clothes so that he can change because then he'd be presentable enough to pass, pass the gates of the king and then to come and talk to her. Her husband, the king, he only surrounded himself with luxury and beauty and he wouldn't have allowed a citizen who was showing such a public display of emotion to enter his court. And let's be honest, this was some serious ugly crying going on. Mordecai refuses the clothes, which tells Esther something extremely significant has happened. As a royal wife, she was isolated, you know, completely unaware of what was going on beyond the palace walls. Well, that's the problem with isolation. We can get comfortable and we become completely self-focused. We think about our own struggles and that's it. We're concerned only with how circumstances are impacting our own plans. It's all about me, me, me. And we just stop making efforts to keep in touch with those we were once concerned about. Who in your life has been out of sight and as a result, out of mind? If a name just came into your mind, just write it down right now so that you'll remember to contact them later today. Because if they're struggling with the risks of isolation too, they aren't likely to stage a public response to get your attention like Mordecai was brave enough to do. Esther is concerned, likely confused about Mordecai's display. She sends a trusted servant to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther, to explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and to plead with him for her people. Mordecai calls Esther to action. He gives her a plan. Will she obey him now like she had in the past? Let's just pause for a moment. Let's acknowledge again what is not included in this book. Mordecai is grieving, but it does not mention that he prays. One commentary I read presumed Mordecai goes to Esther because he feels like she's their only hope. The Jews that remained in Persia were not fully devout God-fearing Jews. They were following some of the customs and the laws, but still, it's curious. God's name is not mentioned at all. We know that Esther has been able to keep her identity hidden for five years, which means she hasn't been following the Jewish customs. 
Now the Babylonians, they had destroyed the temple, the Jews' place of worship. So the Jews couldn't gather together in the building that they once met in. Sound familiar? But that shouldn't have restricted them from worshiping God. And yet it appears that it did. Were the Jews praying? Did they feel like God had deserted them? Well, some likely had forgotten the promise that God had made through Abraham to the Jewish people. Genesis 17, verse 7. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you. From generation to generation, this is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And Moses had given the law to them and in Deuteronomy 28 prophesied that if they did not follow all the words of the law, if they didn't revere the glorious and awesome name of the Lord their God, the Lord would send plagues, disasters. He'd scatter them among the nations and they would worship other gods. So exactly what God said would happen, it did. He didn't force them to obey him. They had a choice. They chose to rebel. It would seem God's people were not talking to him. And he was silent, but that does not mean God was inactive. He was well aware of what was happening. The writer of most of the book of Psalms, King David, reassures us in Psalm 10, verse 14. But you, God, you see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and you take it in hand. Let that verse sink in. God sees our trouble, he considers our grief, and he takes it in hand. Hands, these are the means in which we get things done. Take it in hand suggests action. He is at work. I learned that lesson about 20 years ago. In my third year at Bible college, I wanted to become a better leader, and so I jumped at opportunities to lead other students. The idea of being student council president intrigued me, but I was attending a Mennonite Bible college out in the prairies, and at that time, no female had ever run for student council president. I spoke to one of my professors, and they explained there's no rule against a female in that role. They reassured me that they thought I had what it took to do it. So I started off really excited, and yet as my campaign progressed, some guys voiced their lack of support. I began to feel intimidated. All these questions just flooded my mind. Could what I say, could what I have to say really make any difference? Would I even have any support? And should a woman lead? So I decided it would be better if I just stayed in my room and I avoided seeing anyone. And if I did go out, which I had to for class and for meals, I didn't take time to dress the part I intentionally looked sloppy. I didn't work as hard as I could have. Have you ever done that? Why do we sabotage ourselves? I know now it was because I was afraid and I struggled to understand my identity and that held me back. I didn't win student council president. The captain of the basketball team did, but he did ask me to join him on student council anyways. See, God's hand was just sovereignly at work, preparing me. That was a glimpse 
of how God makes beauty from ashes. Now, I ask you, how can you know if God is doing something if you're not talking to him about it? At first, Esther, she takes no time to ask God for direction. It's clear, she never thought of herself as having the means to be able to affect change. Look at verse nine. Hathak reports what Mordecai says. Verse 10 starts with then, implying immediately. I'm guessing that Esther, like me, is a verbal processor. His voice stopped and hers began. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and to spare his life. But for 30 days have passed and since I was called to go to the king. It's as if Esther is reminding Mordecai of his position beyond the gate. Hey, cuz, you're pretty well informed, but since you're not on the inside like I am, you're still on the outside because anyone in the know would know that I can't just walk up to the king. There were only a few of the king's friends who were permitted to see the king unannounced. Esther's hesitation is quite reasonable. Now you have, may have been faced with a dilemma that if you say or do a specific thing, you might lose your job. But hey, at least you'd still have your head. This boss kills anyone who interrupts him. Talk about fear and control. Her safety is her concern. And remember, she's also been isolated for quite a while, and that does make people often pretty self-focused. Mordecai puts on his father figure hat. I can just imagine the tone of his voice lowering and the intensity as he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is expressing his confidence that the Jews will not face annihilation, but that they will be helped. Now, he may not have believed God himself was going to intervene, but he implies, Esther, if it isn't you, it will be through someone else. Mordecai's point is that the Jews will be delivered somehow, but Esther's doom is certain if she fails to act. Now, his remarks are challenging, maybe even threatening. He knows she's Jewish, but no one else does. So if she doesn't act, is he planning to reveal her identity as a Jew? Esther might have wondered that. He did just tell her servants, so now they know. Threat or not, I think it was his last powerful statement that prompted her to reevaluate her initial reaction to his call to action. He said, who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. You know, I have so many conversations with people who desperately want to know that they have a purpose. They want to know what their calling in this life is. That's one of the main questions that I hear from guests taking Alpha. Individuals are facing an identity crisis. Priscilla Shire once said, identity is a struggle 
People don't know who they are anymore. So much so that people work to redefine what God has clearly defined instead of valuing who God has called us to be. Individuals will travel the world to find themselves. They look at the pursuit of recognition, wealth, power. They question or maybe hope that there's got to be more to life than this. Well, why on earth are you here? Is it an accident? A freak chance of nature that you are you? Is it fate? Or is there a reason why you are where you are? Mordecai suggests that all of the previous circumstances of Esther's life may have led her, a Jewish girl, to the Persian throne just for this moment, when she can intercede for her people. This line of thinking is easy to stomach when a person's life isn't full of hardships, but Esther had endured a life of many losses. You know, much was taken from her, including her parents, her virginity, her freedom. All of these losses could have paralyzed Esther from taking action, but one's value, one's significance cannot be tied to the things that can be taken away, but rather to what is eternal. Esther faced a defining moment as she was forced to decide between identifying herself with God's covenant people or continuing to be indistinguishable from the pagans who surrounded her. But once she accepted that she is who God says she is, her character starts to shine. You know, in future chapters, we'll hear about how Esther uses her femininity, her gifts of hospitality and wisdom, and her position of leadership and about all the good that came from her decision to identify with God's people, but I am jumping ahead. You're gonna have to just keep joining us for the rest of the series to hear the full scoop on all these actions. For now, I'll simply just invite you to consider the same question she had to answer. Which of your identities ultimately shape your life? Are you first and foremost a citizen of a country, a teacher, a parent, an employee, or a follower of Jesus. Esther chooses to identify herself as one of God's chosen. And it's that truth that she is a child of God that now defines her identity. It radically changes her perspective. She sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. If this story had taken place in the last five years, I imagine Esther's attendance having that Bethel song, No Longer Slaves, on repeat for those three days. You unravel me with a melody, you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears have gone. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child 
of God. That song makes me fearless and confident. When was the last time you felt like you could take on the world? Maybe with all that's going on, it's been a while, but take a sec. Can you recall a time when you felt ready to face anything? There was a day not too long ago I felt like that. So my family moved into a new house about two years ago now, and the previous owners loved bird watching. And it can be very relaxing. These days, it's nice to have a stress reliever. So we inherited several bird feeders, and wow, it is quite the task to try and keep those filled. And the squirrels can be really entertaining watching them hang practically upside down to take food out of the feeders. But here's the thing, I don't wanna watch the squirrels. I wanna watch the birds. I get frustrated at how fast those squirrels clean out the seed. And let's face it, I have three children to feed, so bird seed cannot be a regular purchase on my grocery bill. So I asked my wise bird watching friends, what do I do? They told me about squirrel proof bird seed, about greasing the poles that the feeders are on. And so I bought some of those squirrel proof feeders as well. And I was feeling pretty confident those squirrels wouldn't get the best of me. One morning, really early, while everyone else was still asleep, I was sitting on the couch reading and I heard some rustling on the feeders on my deck. Oh, I was determined. These squirrels aren't getting any seed today, not on my watch. So I jump off the couch, flung open the door, and I instantly froze as three huge raccoons were staring back at me. I did what any brave warrior does. I squealed, spun around, and ducked back in the house. It took me a couple of minutes because now what I was up against was not what I expected. But I had to come to accept my mission had not changed. But I wasn't about to go out unarmed. So I grabbed the animal be gone spray and a broom and I took a deep breath and I went back outside. And of course, I scared those critters away. It's in these final verses of Esther chapter four. And we see Esther has that feeling, that newfound confidence. Mordecai is no longer making commands of her. Now she's the one commanding him. Her decision gives her purpose and courage to face a potentially dangerous future. She has a mission. Now, unlike her husband, who, when he's faced with great decisions, goes and drinks, she knows the best way to clear the mind is the spiritual discipline of fasting. Fasting is a way to purify your body. For the people of God, it's more than that. Fasting is refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. It's been said that prayer without fasting is like boxing with one arm tied behind your back. And fasting without prayer, well, that's simply dieting. When people in the Bible want to call on the power of God, they did both prayer and fasting. When Ezra and the people faced a financial struggle, they fasted. When Saul needed guidance on the direction to go, he fasted. Daniel and his friends needed physical health and healing. They fasted. Samuel instructed the whole nation to fast for revival. John the Baptist wanted those who were lost to know Jesus, so he fasted. When the disciples had difficulty 
performing a deliverance, they were told by Jesus that there are certain evil spirits that can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. So here in Esther, the people needed protection. So they fasted. Prayer is not explicitly mentioned, but it is implied, like it is in the prophetic words in the book of Joel, chapter 2. Joel 2, verses 12 to 15 says, Even now, declares the Lord, would you return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning? Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. So who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Mordecai, he echoes the words, who knows, from Joel chapter 2. Now the exact same words are also used in the book of Jonah. When the Ninevites, they were living, enjoying the pleasures of this world, and they had no interest in a relationship with God. And the Lord must punish, or else he wouldn't be just. So they deserved eternal separation. They, they were about to receive God's wrath, but because God is compassionate and patient, he sent Jonah to warn them. The Ninevites listened to the warning, and instantly they were transformed. They fast, they repent, they say, who knows, God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Throughout scripture, we see God gives people a second chance after second chance, after second chance. When Esther tells the Jews to fast, it's a turning point for her and all the people. Fasting is an opportunity to grieve sin to cry out for help, to be restored into a relationship with the living God. That is God's purposeful plan. Throughout all of scripture, we're reading this story of how God is working to restore the relationship that he originally had with all of humanity. And he calls people to join him. Now, whether or not Esther was aware of it, was she acting as God's agent? The doctrine of divine providence would say, yes, she was. God is in complete control of all things. I'll say that another way. God is never out of control. Since God has a purposeful plan, anyone who believes in him becomes an ambassador of his plan. If you are a follower of Jesus, being his ambassador is your life purpose. And how you do it and to whom you interact with is completely unique to you. You're the only you there is. So be the person God created you to be. As I see the anxiety, the, the depression, the exhaustion in the lives of those that I chat with, I very much believe this is a moment for the church to advance, not to retreat. People desperately want to hear good news. So whatever sphere of influence that you have been entrusted with, you are responsible to share, to speak Jesus in that circle. And as you are faithful there first, you will be entrusted with more. God's purposeful plan gives us purpose. 
As soon as Esther became confident in her identity as one of God's people, she was no longer held back by her past. Then she was ready to do what God had created her and positioned her to do. And she boldly stated, if I perish, I perish. God used someone due to gender, culture, and circumstance, was powerless and was invisible, and he made her pivotal, a formidable heroine, like the five-year-old boy in the story that I began with. Esther was willing to give her life in the hopes of saving God's people. Well, what would you give up if it would save others? Food, money, comfort, reputation, safety. Each of those are going to just pass away. Charles Swindoll, he wrote, In our overpopulated world, it is easy to underestimate the significance of one. It's easy to underestimate the value of you, your vote, your convictions, your determination to say, I'll take a stand. So what injustice are you currently facing? And are you wondering, does it matter if I get involved or not? It does. It matters to your character. Because as soon as you believe that you can make a difference, you become willing to take a risk. Stop worrying what others will think. Quit being so careful to protect just yourself. Can one person make a difference? Christ did. One man became the savior of the entire world. And Jesus, he willingly chose to die. He gave his body for us, just as it was preordained. He fulfilled what was written. And that clarity about his purpose for living, it motivated him to get up in the morning. To, it gave him strength to face each difficult task that lay ahead. We see this when he said in John 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Nikki Gumbel wrote that Jesus shows by the example of his ministry that our spiritual hunger, a life of emptiness and a lack of purpose can only be satisfied by doing God's will. Nothing is more satisfying than doing God's will. Being where he wants you to be and doing what he wants you to do. God has a purpose and a plan for you. Now, if today you've just decided that you want your identity to be first and foremost rooted in being a follower of Jesus, that's amazing. And all you have to do to do that is just openly declare that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Scripture reassures us you are saved. Now, the next step is to overcome your past. Work to know yourself Understand and use your gifts and rely on God's spirit for strength and power. And then boldly, like Esther was willing, but Christ actually did, give your life to do what God created you and positioned you to do. Some of you aren't sure what to do with this excitement to act. And if your normal go-to is to rant on social media, I caution you. I know that's one way to have a voice, and it can be a helpful platform, but it's often a way that causes more disunity than unity. So I'm compelled to end with an emphasis on the example that we see in Esther chapter 4. 
when you're called to act and you have an opportunity to stand for faith in Jesus' name, here's the takeaway. Esther didn't impulsively stomp into the king's court and make demands. She fasted for three days. She invited others to fast. The people of God united together, repented of sin, and spent time in God's presence waiting. When we do this, we see glimpses of God, and that's when we can follow his lead. So today, find unity in one another. Take time to fast and pray. Cry out to God for mercy because in his presence, we find clarity about who he is and about our identity and his will. And we gain confidence in knowing there is purpose, a God-given purpose for you, me, for us together in this life. 